But beloved, if you've been through the kind of trouble where you just have to tell someone and you haven't learned yet that the most important one to tell is your heavenly father in the name of his son and the power of his spirit, then you're missing out. And that's what that little song, that little gospel song is meant to convey. It is a strong word of admonishment that we need to sing to ourselves. It's a great word that we sing to ourselves and be careful about smashing that into the face of someone else who's going through some trouble. I'll just pray about it. But it is very helpful when you find a brother or sister who's struggling with whatever the challenge that they're facing to say, okay, it's bad. Let's go. Let's take it together to God and pray on the spot. I give you a moment for silent prayer if you want to avail yourself of 1 John 1 9. The Apostle John says, Believers in Jesus Christ who are saved by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, who commit personal sins, can receive fellowship, temporal forgiveness of sin. Those who are forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future, in terms of an eternal relationship with God, and yet have broken fellowship with God through personal sin, can have it restored by cleansing. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in awe when we are in our right mind. We have the fear of the Lord if we pay attention to your word and as we watch. You put us through our paces. We watch your works in history. We watch the things that we're seeing in geopolitics even uh, tend toward the further deterioration that the Bible predicts. Father, we're in awe of you and we're in the scriptures tonight where Isaiah teaches us to ask you. Father, if we're raised up in any way against you, break us down. Break us down in advance before the lawnmower comes. Let us humble ourselves under your mighty hand because we want you to exalt us in your way, in your proper time. We look for that work in us, Father, every moment. Even in this hour, as we open your word to know you on your terms, open our hearts to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, I'd like to speak with you out of Isaiah chapter 37, Isaiah chapter 37, about the prayer of King Hezekiah, one of the prayers we have recorded in Scripture of King Hezekiah. And if I ask you to think about what you know about prayer from the Bible, not only from your experience, but from the Word of God itself, what would you have? What could you share? What could you bring to the table in that kind of discussion. Wouldn't that be a great discussion to have over a pizza or something, sit around, fellowship over a meal, some ice water, especially after a hot day like this or a glass of iced tea? Whew. We need to start putting iced tea out there. That's, I need to start putting some iced tea out there. That would be pretty good. All right, wouldn't that really be nice to sit around and just no phones, everybody's phone is away, and we're all... We're all talking to each other around a table and discussing, fellowshipping on what we know from the Bible on prayer. No cheating, no opening your Bible. What would you have to say? To say? What, what could you bring to the table? Have you, thought, have you ever thought about that? 
The Bible teaches prayer. Well, we've been talking about it a lot, actually, especially on Wednesday nights. When there's a place in the Bible where the story includes a prayer, we really emphasize it, we highlight it. I'm going to take you back to the begin- before COVID. We were studying eschatology. We were working, we were cooking through the book of Daniel, and we hit a, an awesome snag in Daniel chapter 9. Remember that? Prophecy hounds know Isaiah chapter 9, or sorry, Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, because of the calendar and the 70th week and the people of the coming prince and all that. And, and I believe that that's a prophecy of Antichrist and the tribulation period and the seven years and corresponds perfectly with Revelation. And I, I think that the, the pre-trib dispensational look at that is exactly what the Bible is saying. But before you get to that part, Daniel is interceding for the entire nation and he's begging God for restoration. And, and it's a long prayer, many days and nights. Prayer is a big deal in the Bible, and I think one good way to define it is when you're talking to God. So ask the question this way, where in the Bible are people talking to God? One of the worst prayers in that sense is when Adam passes the buck and says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I gave her. He's talking to God. It's not a great time of prayer, but it is a face-to-face encounter with God. The last Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is betrayed and nailed to a cross to pay for your sins and mine, is sweating blood in prayer. And before he goes to his father in prayer, he tells his disciples, I am in despair, not, not in a sinful sense, but I am uh, heartsick to the point of death, he says. It's overwhelming what is upon him. And all he can do is go to his heavenly father in prayer. And you know what that prayer is, right? You know what Jesus prays when he's talking to his father about going to the cross? Your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. That's the conclusion. That's the thread through all of Jesus' prayers. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Look for it in Jesus' prayers when he actually, when it lists or, or, or writes out what he says. Sometimes he's up on the mountain praying and you don't know what he's saying, but sometimes it's included. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was, he says in John 17 when he prays that whole chapter of prayer. Wonderful topic to think about what we know from the Bible. What do we know about prayer? Take it away, Lord. Who's got a verse? Who's got a passage? Give me a chapter. Give me an author. Take it away, Lord. Who said that? Three times I asked the Lord, take it away. It's the Apostle Paul. Where did he say it? I'll give you a hint. Second. Corinthians chapter 12. (laughs) Chapter 12. Paul says, three times I asked the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh. And he said, no. Usually you and I get an answer no. In fact, I'm 100% of the time when it's a no, I don't get an audible. I just get a no, no. I mean, it doesn't happen, whatever it is. Or not not now is actually how I think that I'm supposed to conclude that. But, But Lord Jesus says to Paul, no, because I'm using that. The weaker you are, the stronger my, my glory shining through you is the paraphrase I'd make of what Jesus says to Paul. My power is made complete in your weakness. We find ourselves in a place in the scriptures where a king is losing his kingdom. There's no way he can stop it. 
There's nothing he can do. There's no buying off another army to save him. There's no marshalling a secret band of rangers or special operators to go in and kill the enemy king. There is nothing he can do. There's an overwhelming almost 200,000 man army outside the gates of his city. Every other city in his country has already been taken, surrounded, and neutralized. And all that remains is the capital city. The cousins or the brothers to the north, the northern kingdom, has been destroyed by the same army 20 years before. King is the, the, one of David's descendants, Hezekiah. And he has no hope except in God's word and in God's provision. We're looking in the place in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 where we have the story of King Hezekiah, a notable moment historically in the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. That's why it's included as a little interlude, kind of an appendix on the end of the oracles of God's wrath and judgment, chapters 1 through 39. And what should happen after a fashion is, in a sense, is that this Assyrian, Gentile, Eastern Semitic power should destroy the southern kingdom. They should complete the desolation. And they should do it because, as we've read so far in Isaiah, God is bringing the Assyrians as an instrument of discipline for their idolatry, for the national idolatry of the people of God, Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. And the idolatry is bad enough that God should bring this wrath. But we've studied that King Hezekiah is a rare exception to, his, to the kings in his day. He led a national uh, return to God and worship of God, reminiscent of the worship of God in King Solomon's day when they opened the temple. And the question on our, on our minds as we come to this story, even though we have already probably read it many times, is are these reforms enough? Is what Hezekiah has done in returning the nation to worship the Lord, has the nation's response been sufficient to forestall God's wrath? Do we have a situation like with the Ninevites, the Assyrians, Nineveh is their capital, in, those, in the story of the prophet Jonah, the great missionary uh, story of Israel? where this Israelite goes to the Assyrians and preaches repentance from their wickedness. And if they'll turn, then they won't be destroyed. But 40 days and you'll all be destroyed. And they do. They repent. And God spares Nineveh for that period of time. The point, remember, that's the point of the, the story of Jonah is the end where he says, I, I, I don't get it why you saved them. They're our enemies. We hate them. And God's point is, you don't think like I think, Jonah. And that's how the story ends. What's wrong with you? Basically, there's the, the last part of the book of Jonah is a question from God. What, what's your problem? Why don't you get me? You think like you, but you don't think like me. Why don't you make the, the adjustment as the challenge God offers Jonah? You can check that out. I, I'm not really paraphrasing. I'm summarizing. But these Gentile people repent. And the prophesied judgment that God sent Jonah to offer. You know, Jonah didn't want to go, right? He, he did what he could not to go, and then he became the world's first submariner. Got to say that in Connecticut. All right? 
I want to go the other way. Well, the other way involves uh, getting back to land in a way you're not going to like. But that's what happened. And so, okay, Lord, I'll go. And uh, we love the story, but the point of the story is, what are you thinking? Are you thinking like your creator? And it's, um, it's comic in a classic sense of comedy, a literary sense. Um, but it's also tragic in a thematic sense because Jonah doesn't think like his creator. He's not with, with his father's heart. Well, will God do this with the southern kingdom of Israel? Will he stop the destruction that he has brought to their gates in the persons of the Assyrians, in this army of the Assyrians. And you have to deal with the two ways of looking at life that are very evident in the story. The way you and I look at life is that this is my country, and this is that country, and this is how big our army is, this is where our budget is, this is what our lifestyle is. This is what's going on with them. How can we deal with them to improve our situation and, uh, and not be, uh, be taken over by them? How can we work together on this chessboard of the world? And we don't think that there is beyond what we can see a creator who is actually putting kings in power and removing kings. As we heard on Sunday, four times, I believe in Daniel 4, it says God establishes kings and God removes kings. And we, we forget about what we can't see and we get into this trap of thinking all that we can see is all that there is. And it's, it is a functional atheism. God has so designed you with the kind of sensory perception that you cannot detect him with your senses. And yet his existence antedates everything else that exists. The material universe is after him, the God who's been there forever and ever and ever but we can't see him, so we forget about him. So we go to his word and we were reminded that the reason for the Assyrians is not just because Jotham wanted the Assyrians to whip the northern kingdom and the, and the Syrians in the Syro-Ephraimite war <coughs> a generation before. <clears throat> it was, that's not the main issue, but it did happen in Isaiah's ministry. It isn't that there's the Egyptians and we can maybe work with them and they could throw off the Assyrians. It's not that later the Babylonians are going to come and can we get the Egyptians to whip the Babylonians? It is, are you dealing with your creator to his satisfaction? Are you pleasing to him? And that's what God wanted from his nation, from Israel. And the book of Deuteronomy was very clearly written out as an expression of how these people covenanted with the creator of the universe as his special nation could be pleasing to him in a relationship with him that he desired to constantly bless. Walk with me. Worship me as your God. Don't have any other gods. Don't worship idols. Don't make any carvings even of me or propose that this is what Yahweh looks like. Just worship me as I prescribe. I'll bless you. Your wine vats will be full. Your oil will be overflowing. You will have the fatness of the land. You'll, you'll, your children will dwell in security. All the blessings that God promised that he wanted to give his people as a priest nation, as a missionary nation to show the world what it is to relate to the God of creation. Well, they, as you know, forsook that birthright. They acted like we all do, like functional atheists, and they did what seemed right to them based on what they could see and feel instead of what God had said. 
God's word, was as important to them as it is to our culture. It's irrelevant. There's not a lot of appetite for joy, but we'll go for some fun, for example. And personal relationships, that's, we, we talk about a relationship, that means uh, the opposite sex, that means romantic relationship. And the idea of rapport with God as the one relationship that then determines how everything else will go in my life, that's irrelevant. And so there's a great application for us. Is God going to forestall the judgment on the southern kingdom? And as you know, the way the story turns out, he will. But why? Why? Well, in part, it's because of King Hezekiah, because of his leadership, because of his intercession for the, for the nation, and this is how you do it. So what happened? The greatest kingdom in the world at that time, in the known world, Mesopotamian kingdom of the Assyrians, sent a delegation to Hezekiah's people and said, surrender and everybody gets to live. We don't want to kill everybody, but you know we will. And by the way, the, the Assyrians will torture you to death for fun if they have to take your country, your, if they have to actually destroy your, your, your city. If we have to fight a battle, we're going we're gonna, to um, have bets on how long we can keep the captives alive while we skin them alive with whips. The Assyrians are some of the worst uh, torturers of military captives in the ancient world. And this just reminds me of uh, what we talked about on Sunday with the, um, with the horror of the, the Russian threat into Ukraine, the Russian attack and soldiers on their own soil. I saw a news report this last week about the unspoken atrocities of rape by Russians in Ukraine. Because when a military force marches on your soil, we just haven't experienced it, but history teaches us, if you read the reports of what people have said through world history, it's, it's one of the worst things, if not the worst thing that ever happens because the capacity of man to destroy man is, is greater than nature's attack of man. I mean, poison ivy's bad, and we don't like earthquakes and tornadoes and all the things, but when man gets involved and he starts hunting you to do whatever he wants because of his great wickedness, we have great problems. And so Rob Shaka has a message. He, we heard from him twice. He says, um, don't believe Hezekiah who's trying to give you to the Egyptians. The Egyptians won't save you. And there is a part of the story that earlier on when Hezekiah tries to go to the Egyptians, but not at this point. There is then the, the, the delegation comes back to Rabshakeh, the chief cupbearer of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, and they say, Rabshakeh, uh, why don't you speak to us in Aramaic, your language? That way the people on the wall won't be bothered by it. So then you have Rabshakeh's second message uh, to the people. He says, I'm going to talk to everybody. And he says, everybody, come on out. You can have your stuff until we resettle you in a land, and you're going to like it. It's over by Haran, where your people are from, in part anyway. So just, you know, back to Abraham. It's, it's back in those days. So, so just, just come on out and throw down your arms, and we'll, we'll all make peace. That's his second message. And the people didn't answer anything because Hezekiah had instructed them not to speak to Rabshakeh. And then we had an intervention where Isaiah gives a prophecy from the Lord that there will be a rumor that will remove the Assyrian from you. And sure enough, Rabshakeh goes back, finds out that the king isn't at Lachish anymore. He's gone to fight Terhaka. And so he comes back with this third message and it is basically, you can't believe Yahweh. Let's read it. Thus you shall say to King Hezekiah of Judah, 
Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. So he's heard the story. His spies have determined what is being said in Judah, in Jerusalem, about Isaiah's oracle, about what Isaiah has prophesied that the Assyrians are not going to destroy you. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Right there, from Genesis 3 when the serpent speaks until the end of the revelation, we know that when someone accuses God of deception, it's from Satan. It is the enemy speaking. It is an, a satanic attack on the truth. Now, how do you know it's the truth? God says it. How do you know that so-and-so is lying? Their mouth is moving, right? But when God says it, this is called revelation from God. And the whole thing from Genesis 3 and forevermore is do you trust him? Do you take what he says and trust in what he says because of who he is? Don't let your God deceive you. Because this is what your God is going to say. Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Yahweh, Yahweh, your local Baal, your local Lord, your local God that you think is controlling everything, we've all got our gods. Don't believe the oracle from your God. And what he's done, as we said, is he's, he's incorporated the worldview that he has about the, the, in the pagan pantheon system of, of deities for every town. He is apparently incorporating this into his communication and assuming that they think like he does. Now, here's the interesting thing. They may well, many of the people may think like he does because they've been very co-opted through the generations by the Canaanites. They think like pagans, a lot of them. But if you're scriptural, if you read the Old Testament scriptures, you can't think that way. There is no Baal. There's no Asherah. There's no, they worship these other deities and they have names for them, but they don't exist. They carve images and say, there, there's Asherah. But there is no Asherah. <clears throat> in fact, they'll say Baal in the Canaanite system. They'll say he's the sun, S-U-N. We see him go across the sky every day. We know we have a God. We see him traverse the sky. They had figured out a lot of things, too, because they attributed to him fertility. They thought that he had something to do with the, with the rain. If you pleased him, then he would make the clouds rain so that you could get fertility in the crops. And how do you get Baal to make it rain? Well, you have to ask me in an adult discussion because it's actually pornographic. It has to do with the phallic cult, and that's the abomination of the Canaanites. But, but see, the, these pagans have a very consistent worldview that the gods are like super beings that are part of creation like we are. And the God of the Bible is the one who's there before creation who is not part of creation at all. So this is what your God is saying, and he quotes him correctly, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Now there's something wrong when someone says, this is what God's word says, and you are not to believe it. Let me quote, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Someone quotes it accurately and says, you shouldn't put your faith in that. But that's what's happened here if you think about what Rav Shock is saying. He continues, this cupbearer to the king of Assyria says, behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? We have killed everybody. We've taken out all these different countries. Did the gods of these other nations, which my fathers have destroyed, deliver them? 
even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath? He's a notch in our belt. His skull is crushed under our iron boot. You, can't, you don't have any hope because we've beaten all these other countries. It's, our, it's, it's an undefeated football, football dynasty against the, the Peewee League. You can't beat us. We are undefeated. The king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim and of Hena and Iva. We have taken out everybody we've tried to take out. So, what is Rabshakeh's or Rabshakeh? What is his argument? His argument is that you may hear a word from God that you're supposed to trust in that the king of Assyria won't defeat you. But you shouldn't believe that because look at your eyes. Look what your eyes can see. You can see all of the crowns that I'm holding in my hand from all these kings that said their God would deliver them. We have conquered all of this territory. Let history make you a student of reality. You can't trust in your local deity. You have to trust in the facts that we're going to beat you. It's very convincing. It's psychological warfare, and it's designed to demoralize the enemy. It's designed to say, throw down your arms without a fight. It saves everybody a lot of money. It, you have to pay your soldiers to fight. If there's a siege and there's no spoil from the fighting, you have to feed them and pay them and keep them there for the siege. And it took them three years to smoke out Samaria, to, siege, to lay siege to the northern kingdom to finally defeat them. Nobody wants that. If you could just get them to melt on the inside, then the thing will crack open. That's what you see happening. Why is this so helpful for us? Because you're going to encounter a message in your life that you can abstract a little bit from what Rav Shacheh says. God's word says this thing, but you don't trust that because look at what you're seeing that I'm telling you. Look, you believe your eyes, not the word of God, is the argument. When you see that argument... Hopefully you'll remember the pattern because it's a pretty straightforward pattern. He's very clever and uh, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, if this guy had transistors and had solid state devices and, and electronics, he couldn't come up with a better argument. He'd be just like this, except maybe he'd be dumber because his brain hadn't been exercised as much as uh, when you have to read. And, and uh. Anyway, so here we go. That's the Rob Shaka's message. What does Hezekiah say in response? Nothing to Sennacherib. He sends no delegation back. He has nothing to say. Uh-uh. There's nothing. He can't say, leave. Last chance before God smites you. He doesn't know what God's going to do, except God said that the king of Assyria is not going to take Jerusalem. So he just has to take this overwhelming psychological attack to the place where we sang earlier. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. One plus God is infinity plus one, right? Infinite power plus you, kind of there with him. I'm with you, Lord. You're fine if you have him, if you're with him, if you're walking with him. And that's the way to think. And so if you don't think of him, if you don't take it to him, you, we, we will be functionally atheist. We'll act as though all I can see is all that there is. And so overwhelming firepower is going to rain down upon me and I have no hope. 
But if you think of overwhelming firepower opposed to God, well, it's, not, it's no longer overwhelming. And that's, that's the calculus here. That's the, the very quick switch in the reasoning process. We have Hezekiah's prayer in verses 14 through 20. And he says, it says, Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out for, before the Lord. He went to the temple that he had reopened beforehand, months or years before. He spread the letter that he received from Roshaka out before the presence of God. What's he saying? Do you see this? That's what he's saying. God, do you see this? Now, God's omniscient. He's, omnis- he's om- omnipresent. Of course he sees it. Of course he knows it. He's known it from eternity past. But by God's design, as we read here in the text, he wants you to talk to him about it. He wants you in your moment and your experience and your time to spread it before him and say, do you see this? Because God is telling a story and you're part of it and he doesn't make your decisions for you, apparently, but there are many decisions that he wants you to, to, to rightly conclude. And this is one. What do you do, Hezekiah? Everybody's looking at Hezekiah now in the story. We're all reading it, all of world history from then on. 3,000, well, 2,700 years later, uh, we're looking at this and saying, what's Hezekiah going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? He's going to go pray. He's going to talk to God about it. And what do you need to do? You need to take it to God. And you need to feel, I mean feel, the stability of knowing that God is and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in Hebrews eleven six, You need to know that he cares about you and he wants you to talk to him just like Hezekiah did. So what, what did he do? Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord Yahweh, there is no better conjecture on the pronunciation of that word. If you change the vowels where it says Yahweh, so the baby's breathing, oh, that, that's still vowels. It's just changing ah, eh, 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 to uh, uh. But the yod he vav he sacred tetragrammaton, which we don't have the vowel points for because the Masoretes wouldn't write them, is best conjectured Yahweh. And what we do with that is say it's based on, it's not a mystery, by the way, what this word means, Yahweh. It's not a mystery. Because in Exodus chapter 3, we have a couple of data points. Who shall I say sent you? Say that I am sent you. He says it's based on Hayah, the verb to be. H-Y-H. yod He vav He and H-Y-H are connected. It has to do with God's self-existence. See, you can say I am, but it's not a complete thought because I am because God makes me. And so I am in that sense of dependency on him. But God has no dependency. See, he is that he is. He's self-existent. And so it gets to the very origin of what we know of God, which is before there was anything, there was God who made everything. And so that's what this name means. He's the one that is self-existent. And it's consistently translated by the rabbis in the 200s BC as kurios when they wrote it in Greek. And that translates into English as Lord. So everybody from then on says, well, since the pastors are going to learn Hebrew, except for Augustine, and they're going, to, they're going to teach their church what Yahweh means, will, by convention, write Lord in there, since the Jews wrote Adonai, the vowel points for Adonai, in their 
Masoretic text. And so that also means Lord. Nevertheless, this is the covenant-keeping God who revealed himself as Yahweh to Moses when he, re- when he delivered Israel out of Egypt. The Lord of Sabaoth. That means the many, the multitudes. The Lord of the multitudes. And throughout this context, I hopefully I've demonstrated for you that this is a military term by context. What does it mean he's the Lord of hosts? Well, he's the Lord of all the people that take your, um, your seating request at the restaurant, the host or the hostess. He's the Lord of the host. Well, we know it's not that. Well, he's the Lord of many people that love him or many angels that sing his praises. The multitudes throughout this passage have been military in nature. And the Lord of hosts in this case that Hezekiah is calling on is Yahweh with the armies to destroy this military invasion. And that's how the story ends is the angel of the Lord takes out 185,000 Assyrians. All right. O Lord of the armies, the God of Israel. Now this is, think about what we're saying. The creator who made everything and everyone has made one nation, the special possession of his to represent him to all the nations and represent all the nations to him, a kingdom of priests the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. What are the cherubim? Well, we could say they're angels, even though the Bible doesn't call them angels. But we have a category term we use, angels, for all these higher order creatures that were created, not born. These invisible beings of light that the Bible describes at times visibly, that we very rarely, if ever, see. Now, Ezekiel has a vision twice in chapters 1 and 10, especially of these cheruv, cheruvim in the plural, a cherub. And the way Ezekiel describes it is very challenging for us because he has four faces. One like an ox, one like a man, one like a lion, one like an eagle. I'm very intrigued by this. What is this giant, powerful creature with four wings? that is carrying the divan chair, the mobile throne of Yahweh in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10. Read it sometime. Um, Nobody's ever figured out what it means. Some of the Renaissance paintings of the rings of angels are attempts to describe what we're seeing, but this is something that I'm content we'll see soon enough (laughs) when we actually see it. But Ezekiel describes these cherubim, these cherubim. They're powerful living creatures, and they're very fearsome. They guard the throne of God. And they are covering, in a sense. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, uh, the, the book that tells us the most, uh, perhaps, about the cherubs, the cherubim, uh, it calls uh, Satan one. Satan is a cherub. He was a covering cherub, the angel that covered somehow. So what do you do with this? Well, this is the powerful super creatures that serve this God is a way of reminding them of a couple things. The Ark of the Covenant has two cheruvim covering the mercy seat, okay, where the, where the presence of God would, would dwell, where they would um, conduct their ministry. But it is also pointing out the great power of God that this is the one who is served. These are little minions, these mighty creatures that are very fearsome when you read about it in Ezekiel. By the way, how does it have four faces? We don't know. Is it one, two, three, four? Is it one, two, three, four? Is it one, two, three, four? Uh, we, the Bible doesn't say. Um, I, again, can't wait to see 
And I, when I read it in English before I went to seminary in Ezekiel 1, I thought, when I learn Hebrew, I'm going to get a good idea of what I'm dealing with here. And then when I read it in Hebrew, I said, we're not going to know till we see it what's going on here. But these four faces, I will share one little interesting tidbit about the Haruv. In Ezekiel 1, the four faces of the cherub, the, the ox, the man, the lion, and the eagle. When you get to chapter 10, it's the same exact description, same language, except it's a cherub, a man, an eagle, and a lion. The one that's the same is the cherub and the ox. And so I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if he's a Mendatar type creature, but I do know this. There's a lot more that God hasn't told me uh, that I'm going to find out in eternity than he probably has told me. So the one is who's enthroned above the Haruv, the Haruvim, you are the God, you alone. Now, this is a context of Rab Shachah saying, we have de- defeated all these other gods. Your God's going to be just like them. He can't save you. All these other people trust in their gods. And Hezekiah is showing you a biblical worldview against its pagan context. You're the only God. If our people, if you people, if you beloved people could learn this, if we could hold on to this and keep this close. There are things I've told you about tonight that I can't explain. I'm not really sure about how they work. I mean, I don't think anyone that's intellectually honest can really draw you a picture of Ezekiel 1 and 10. But I'm absolutely certain that what's going on in the Hebrew scriptures, which give rise to the New Testament scriptures of the church, of the apostles, the Hebrew scriptures are saying something that is unique in the world in which they were written. That the God we serve is not part of creation and he has not bounded by creation. And he is the origin of all things who is there prior to creation and that all of creation is sustained by his infinite power and yet he's not part of that creation. You are the God, you alone. Now, I know sometimes when you're in a, in, a, in a down phase in your walk with the Lord, perhaps your prayer life isn't as great as it should be. I know there are times when in your prayer life, perhaps, you wonder, is he really listening? If you haven't had moments like that, maybe you never will, but chances are you will. And it's not a lack of God's attentiveness or his concern for you. It has to do generally with our uh, committedness and Uh, intentionality with him. Nevertheless, this is true whether you feel it or whether you know it or not. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. I've taken it and broken it into pieces and talked through it slow because I want you to see the stark contrast between what Hezekiah is saying from his processing of the book of Deuteronomy and all that precedes it and what the rest of the world thinks in the mouth of Rav Shachah, the way the pagans around them think. You live in a post-Christian culture. Used to, this was a Christian society, and that's an anomaly in world history. Most civilizations uh, haven't had the experience of being founded as a Christian civilization. This is, a, this is an anomaly, anomalous culture. It has nothing to do with race or any of the stuff people get worried about. It's about culture and the impact of the cross, primarily, in my view, I think that's the most important issue. But we're post-Christian. 
We're on the downward slide of something that Paul was beginning in, in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts. He's talking to people that are going to preach Christ in a culture they've never heard of the Messiah of Israel, except unless they hear some of these Jews reading their scriptures that are spread throughout the world. So we have a lot in common, in other words, with the biblical writers, especially in the New Testament. You have a message of a God that the people don't know. They may think they know and say that was the old thing we used to believe in culturally, but they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know him. They may think he's an icon. He just like that was the, my parents' religion, and they went to the such and such church, and they, they had pictures, and they had carvings and stuff, and that's what God is, right? And, and so these skewed ideas that are cultural leftovers um, really – they don't have a lot in common with an actual encounter with God through his word. You're the only God. If you know him, I want to challenge you tonight to be serious with him in prayer and ask him, help me pray. We're promised the Holy Spirit prays along with us and makes up what we lack in our weaknesses. You and I should be very effective in prayer as believers in Christ because the Holy Spirit makes up what we lack. But if you're struggling with prayer, Talk to him about that. Wherever you are, start there. It's like when you first learn to run. Some of you are runners. I am am, am thankful to say I was a person that once was a runner. It was my secret weapon until L4, L5 came along, and now I'm happy to walk. All right. If you want to make a seven-minute mile time, the way to do that is not to say, okay, I got to get such and such distance and so much time to make my seven-minute mile, and I'm going to do three of them, 21 minutes, that'll be today. If you're starting out, that's not how you do it. If you know anything about running, the way you start by running is that you don't stop and you bend your knees enough so that you can actually say there is an infinitesimal millisecond in which both feet are off the ground at the same time. I am technically running or jogging, and at least I'm not walking. That's where you start. To become a runner, you have to start somewhere, and you start where you are. Maybe you start where, no, I can actually jog pretty well. I can run, I could probably do eight and a half minute mile, maybe, maybe faster, right? I, I would really be thrilled with, right at this point, probably a 10 minute mile. Maybe three of those, then die, <laughs> probably. But but that's where you are. You start where you are and you, you work it and you deal with that and you, and you try to hold on to that as long as you can and just find that spot where you are and do that. And don't quit and don't say, well, it's not fast enough. No, that's where I am. If you try to go faster than you can, what happens? You quit. It hurts. It hurts too much. You're not strong enough yet. And so it's like lifting weights. You start where you are. You don't start more than you are. Oh, I should be able to lift more. Well, you should, but you can't. So do what you can. That's a lot like prayer. You need to start with them where you are. And if it's God, I don't know how to do this. Great place to start. Start talking to him. I don't know how to do this. Can you please help me do this? Help me talk to you. Help me understand. But I want you to notice one of the things we see in Hezekiah's prayer is that he talks about who God is. And he compares him to the way other people think of, of God or the gods. He talks about him and, and God knows all this, but he still wants to hear it from us. And he wants us to share that with him. If you think of communication as sharing, let me get down on the floor here. I'm going to communicate with you all. 
We are contractually obligated to go until 8 o'clock at least, so y'all settle in. I signed a contract with myself that we would give it the whole time. Now listen. If you think of communication as sharing, guys need to listen very carefully. When your wife is talking to you and you wonder, do, I, do my ears have enough volume, I mean volume, to, to, to accept all that she is saying as the, the powerful user of words that God has made a woman to be. Can I get all that she's saying in there and hold it so that I can understand what she's saying? Men, of course you can, but sometimes you need to pray about that. Ladies, I hope you understand I'm complimenting you and trying to explain something to you at the same time about our limitations. If we would, gentlemen, if we would think of our wives as sharing themselves with us when they're talking to us, that would be a much different thing, if you think about it, in terms of privilege. It wouldn't be the chore that we so often joke about, though. She's going to talk a bunch now. I got to listen. And don't turn on the auto, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Some of you have mastered this, and you've also figured out don't have your phone out while you're doing it. Everybody's like, oh, that's the 2020 version of it. Like, don't put your phone out while you're just saying, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm fully engaged in all that you're saying. Inside, you're, you know, you're, not, you're not listening. But if you thought of her talking to you as sharing herself with you, then that's, that's a good illustration of what God's word is. We get our Bible out and we're like, oh, <sighs> words, paragraphs, words on a page. Here we go. And we just think of it as a chore. But if you thought of God talking to you as him sharing himself with you, and now think of somebody that you think is very important or famous or someone you'd really like to know, and then multiply that by infinity, God, the creator who knows you and loves you, is talking to you about himself. He's letting you know himself. That's what's happening in communication. You're sharing yourself. God is sharing himself with us. And that's the basis for relationship. You can't have relationship without communication because that's the way we share ourselves. So what am I saying? Well, the topic is prayer. When you tell God, this is what I believe about you, you're sharing yourself with him. And yourself has been conformed to him from what he said. So now you're saying what you've told us, God. Hezekiah is saying what Moses taught him. You're the only God. You're glorious. You're exalted. The angels, these mighty beings that we're frightened of, they serve you. Writer of Hebrews says they're ministering spirits sent to render aid for us who are going to inherit salvation. Prayer is sharing your soul with your creator. And this is why you don't do it. It takes time. That relationship takes work. It's work to pray. It's labor in prayer. Set aside the time. Make the investment. Hezekiah is brought to the brink of national disaster. Of course he has to. And this is the best prayers we ever offer, the ones we have to give. God has a way of saying, I want to hear from you. Here's some, here's some, some pressure. I want you to talk to me. I want you to share with me. And you tell God who he is. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. 
the biblical worldview says that all of the nations of the earth rejected the authority of God and threw off his yoke as best they could. In Genesis chapter 11, after the flood, not too many generations later, mankind again said, I know God's word says this, but I'm going to do this. And that's why Genesis 12, God started over with Abraham and said, I'm going to bring forth Messiah to save all of them through this one family. And he brought them out of Egypt after building them up into a mighty nation. He brought them out of Egypt and gave them his covenant so that they would be his special theocratic kingdom nation. And so the Jews, Israel, the one people, the one nation with a covenant with the creator. Think about what it means that they rest fourth commandment on day seven. What does it mean that they rest on day seven? God rested of his labors on day seven. Well, which God? The only God that made everything. See, this is interesting how this is branded. And so he goes back to creation. You've made everything, heaven and earth. So Hezekiah, in saying this, is establishing in his own heart who he believes God to be, but he's also sharing that with his creator intentionally. It's so crazy that we say God already knows that he's, that he's God, so I don't need to say that to him. What kind of fatalist would you have to be to say that I don't need to share my conviction that this is true with him as a volitional act in myself back to him? See, that's that, that idiotic, or excuse me, I'm sorry, that's mean. That's mean. That's me talking to me. That sophomoric, I know a little bit, just enough to be dangerous. That, that idea that God already knows that he's God. So I don't need to say, God, you alone are God. No, say it to him. If you believe it, share it with him. You have a lot more to say to God than you think if you believe these things about him. God, you rested on day seven. You made everything. And you, yet you are not personally part of any of it, eminence and transcendence. You're sovereign and yet there's wickedness in the world because you're allowing people to make their choices and you've enabled me to make this choice. Thank you for the wisdom to say these things to you right now because I wouldn't have it if you hadn't told me. In other words, just let's disconnect that idea that omniscient God already knows. Yeah, he does. That's not the point. You're sharing who you are in terms of who he is with him. And now he brings his request. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Are we disagreeing that God already knows what's going on? He's omniscient. That means he knows all that's... No, he does know. But he's saying, I would like your personal attention in this instance. Please bring your attention to bear. Open your eyes and see. Some of you need to ask God about that in the crisis that you're dealing with. And if you don't have it today, perhaps tomorrow. God, do you see this? Would you please bring some attention to this situation? That's the first request, and it is the opener for the big ask that he's going to bring. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib. This is the tattletale part of it. God, did you hear what Sennacherib said about us and about you? He said, don't believe your word. Did you hear what he said? This is the right way to tattle. 
Some of you will come tell me things that others have done or said, and at times that can be helpful, not because now I'm a cudgel for you to use to, swack, to smack other people, but because it gives me some perspective about what I'm dealing with, all right? But generally, thank you, you don't do this. But we should all be taking our tattlings to the Lord. Do you know what's happening, God? Did you hear what Sennacherib said? Who sent them to reproach the living God. Now that is where you want to live. You want to live where an affront to you is actually there being an affront to God because you are in his hand, because you're on his mission, because you're about his business. Don't try to take this out of context and say, well, that person was offensive to me, so I'm going to bring God. Come on, God. You're my bodyguard. Go, uh, go address that. They offended me. Now, Hezekiah says, we're your people, and they're offending you when they attack us. This is, we're on mission. We opened the temple. We've been uh, doing the Passover. We invited the northern kingdom to join us in the Passover. You saw what we've done for you, and you've honored that, God. We've been praying with you. We've been not only your people by covenant that you kept, but we have begun to keep covenant back with you. So when they say this about us, they're really saying it about you. They sent a reproach. They sent these men to reproach the living God. They even contradicted your word. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands. He's saying what Rab Shachah said. Rab Shachah said, the, the great cupbearer says, the prime minister of Assyria has said, we beat all these countries. And Hezekiah agrees with him and tells God. Now God knows that. And there's truth in what Rob Shaka said, that God permitted and brought them to do that. He, God's in control. He let, it, he let it happen. And he, in fact, raised them up to do it in the cases of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as discipline. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and they've cast their gods into the fire. Later on in Isaiah, there's this long poem about how this man will grab a stick and he'll cut it into pieces and he'll burn it for a campfire and he'll make a, he'll make a, you know, um, a, a hat rack out of it and then part of it he'll carve into a god and bow down and worship it. Duh. That, that's not really worthy of your worship because you made it. And that's what's happened, God. They've thrown their idols into the fire for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. For the most of you, the challenges you're going to face, it's not going to be like you're going to pray that the idolaters have had their idols taken down. And it may not be quite like that. But when there is the worldview clash and the truth about the real living God is in stark relief against the alternative, you know what to say. God, you're the real God. And these things are not. It's a Mount Carmel experience with Elijah and the priests of Baal. So they've destroyed them because they aren't gods. You can break sticks. You can crush stones into smaller stones. Make some processed, right? Processed granite or, or gravel. So these have been destroyed. But now we have the actual request. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand. It's just like Peter when he's sinking after walking on water in Matthew 14. Save me, Lord Jesus. The simple request, when all is said and done, verses 14 through 20, the request is, save us. Now, God already said he would deliver them from Assyria through Isaiah. 
They already have a witness to this. Rob Shaka said, you can't believe God's word about that. So now Hezekiah prays in accordance with the revealed word of God. He prays what God has already said he would do. You said you'd deliver us from him. Deliver us from him. So here's the, here's the pattern. God speaks. I have to trust him. Okay, in the moment, I trust him. Here comes the challenge. Here comes the stress. Do I still trust him? I look back at what he said. Now I trust him. Here comes the next challenge. It's a bigger challenge. You can't even believe what God said. Do I look back at what he said? Yes, I trust him. And here, God, I'm talking to you. Do what you said back here. I've been trusting you. Do you see these attacks on what's happened? This is the timeline. This is what's happened in their experience. And so what does he do? Now, O oh Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. And then remember what we said last time. This is kind of the stinger. Save us. But then he's got a very wonderful and helpful theological reason why. Why does Hezekiah ask God to deliver them? So that the world may know that you alone, Lord, are God. See the benefit of slowing things down sometimes? What we do here together in part is the discipline that involves a little bit of an academic approach, but it's the discipline of slowing down and actually looking at what's happening, juicing it a little bit as we think through and comparing it and applying it in our lives as we go. He makes his request, I colored it blue, with a theological motivation. The reason why I'm asking you for deliver us is so that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This is how to pray. Paul prays the same way. Jesus prays the same way. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Think what you're asking for and why. This is what James says. You ask for your pleasures. And so you don't have because you don't, you don't ask with right motives. What, what are we doing? What are we here for? Have you asked God to strengthen you in the skill of making disciples since that's the mission he's given you? Have you asked him to help you with that? I am suspicious that he will answer that in ways you never would have imagined. I mean, you want to get some prayers answered, right? You want to have successful prayer life and say, God, please, and, and he does. And you part of his works by asking him to act. Know what I mean? Have you ever asked him to help you do the things that he said he wants you to do? Our Father, we thank you for the eternal life, for the perspective that you give us through your word about the life the world around us, the circumstances of our situation and how they compare to your word. We thank you for the challenge of Hezekiah, how we could very easily, all of us, fold under the pressure he was facing and not go directly in prayer, reminding you of your promise. But we thank you for the pattern and the strength we've gotten from it. Father, for the challenge that inevitably you have for us to live these things out, we ask for a challenge. Father, strengthen us to take our requests to you for theological purposes that you would be glorified. Glorify yourself in our life, we ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.